Mary Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. My guest is Garth Jordan, the new CEO of the American Animal Hospital Association. And I'm delighted to have him here today to talk about business models and revenue for associations, something that is certainly top of mind for today's association professionals. Garth, let's just start with the question that everybody is wondering about at a very high level. What should people be thinking about when it comes to replacing lost revenue right now? That's a very good question, Mary. And I think there's a, a, a strategic planning topic for me, from my perspective, that helps answer that. Uh, we at HFMA, my, my old role, used a strategic planning uh, label called Now Near Far. And it was originally developed uh, by the gentleman who is the CEO at Ford, whose name is escaping me right now. Uh, and previously, he was the CEO at Steelcase, the furniture, uh, worldwide furniture manufacturer. At HFMA, we applied now near far, and the, the, the kind of mentality of now near far is, I need to be successful now, right? While des purposefully designing a pathway to the near and far that allows me to pivot resources in that direction. So I'll give you an example, Ford's example. I'll give you HFMA's example. Ford's example was in the now, we need to free up 7 billion, that's a lot I know, in resources by eliminating the production of cars, most cars. We take that 7 billion and in the near term, we invest it into the uh, um, electric car, uh, truck and SUV development and autonomous vehicles. And in the far, we Ford are becoming a consumer transportation platform, not just a car company. So it's pretty directive what the, in Ford's eyes, what the now was about. It was about finding 7 billion in resources that allows them to pivot towards a near-term goal. At HFMA, uh, we had a very similar now statement. We wanted to free up a certain number of resources, and this is during COVID, okay? We want to free up a certain number of resources that allow us to pivot towards a near term that is about ultimately expanding our audience. So we're, we're hyper-focused on healthcare finance, uh, which many professional associations are hyper-focused on one, one uh, um, discipline. Mm -hmm. But the challenges of healthcare finance aren't solved by one discipline. They actually involve multiple disciplines. So we were looking at pivoting towards an organization that was, if you will, a little more cause related, right? Cause. So to get back to your question, what should we be thinking about right now? For us, we didn't want to do it in a vacuum, right? Meaning go out and sell 20 more sponsorships, right? I, I know that that's a knee jerk reaction for some and for some that might be what needs to happen for us we said we can't sacrifice now, we can't sacrifice the near just to work on the now. You kind of almost have to think in two time zones differently. 
like you're scheduling a call with people in the Pacific and, and the Eastern time zones. You have to think in your two time zones. So we said, well, what are the resources? So I'm going to give you a very specific example. I'm not saying we did it well, but I want to give you an example. In associations, uh, think of, of, we always think of, of budgets, but what if we think of a content budget instead of a financial budget? If we, on any given month, if we publish 100,000 words, both in written form, spoken form, webinar form, what if we only publish 30,000 words a month? A, we would reduce the amount of resources spent on publishing, but then those resources could be redirected towards something that's about the near term, right? So we have to think maybe a sometimes a little bit differently um, and that, that uh, towards things that allows, allow us to pivot towards uh, a longer term opportunity. So it kind of answers your question, maybe it kind of doesn't, um, about generating immediate revenue. The, the other piece about immediate revenue for us was about retention and, and not allowing retention to be sacrificed because that is not only short-term revenue, but also near-term and longer-term revenue. So we were very, very hyper-focused on retention um, and not as much about spreading our resources out around, you know, driving more sponsorships or et cetera. We said, let's focus on the one thing that's going to matter right now and long-term and that would have been retention for us. So actually for some time now, I've noticed that, that these skill sets within associations need to evolve and they need to evolve more quickly. And what you're describing here is a staff skill set that is very, very strategic and allows you to think, uh, like you said, about multiple timeframes simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And that is not easy work. And we don't have a lot of experience in it, quite honestly. So I think part of this conversation move, moving forward is how can we be reskilling? And how can we be bringing into the fold people who already have some of these skill sets that we need? Mm -hmm. But, but part of the challenge right now is the uncertainty. We don't know when the end is in sight. We don't know when we're going to be able to bring people back together face-to-face -to -face safely. We don't know how long we're going to have to be virtual. So even our contingency plans need a contingency plan, uh, which is fatiguing. But, uh, you know, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you have the most urgent short-term conversations uh, be about? And, and you've already given us one idea, and that is the, we just can't think about now, we also need to be thinking about near-term. Um, but, but what else, what other advice would you give, I guess, to association professionals who are trying to figure out what I call the next normal? The new normal is what's happened to us. The next normal is what we create in response. So what, what do they need to be thinking about and talking about? My answer is going to sound a little, little esoteric at first, <laughs> but I will try to give a very specific example of the outcome of thinking and acting in a certain way. Perfect. So in my experience, associations and the business model that we are, uh, that we've inherited that started at headwaters long before we started swimming upstream in the last year. 
the, the models that, we, that we've inherited, and when I say models, I mean outward facing to our members as well as the model of our structures internally. Are, they are very compartmentalized because they require certain expertise, publishing expertise, education expertise, certification and credentialing expertise. So we tend to organize around those products. And, uh, and therefore, we build our staff and our skill sets, to your earlier comment, around those products. When we look at the world around us that was happening before COVID, there are many companies out there that are creating much more holistic experiences. So on platforms, whether it's Uber and Airbnb, whether it's Netflix, whether it's Warby Parker, but Warby Parker completely disrupted the world of optometry, right? Um, because they created a simple, uh, uh, consumer-centered way of, of getting your glasses, right? Very friendly, very fun. The association model and, and the recommendation that I have is to start to think and act more holistically. So that seems very esoteric, right? We've inherited this model, this structure, and we've built all these departments around all these things that we produce. So what do I mean by, without changing your business model, from an inside out perspective, how do we act more holistically? I'll give you an example. When someone buys a membership from any one of us, they don't think about the departments that we're running. They think about the value they can extract from the 200, 300, $400 membership. So we usually as associations have a membership department, but that membership department and there are features of membership like a magazine, like access to webinars and, and uh, um, access to an online community, access to chapters. I mean, there are features of membership that are created and run by different departments, but the membership department is usually about maybe volunteerism and maybe um, recruitment and retention, getting the invoices out and doing the marketing. I would argue for, say, uh, associations to build a cross-departmental member experience team that thinks holistically about the product of membership, if you will, as a single thing that we deliver. And our job is to help Mary, when she joins, extract value as easily as possible, not to market the individual features to Mary, and if we can think and act that way very quickly here, it will affect your recruitment, your retention, and your immediate revenue base. One, one example of that is when you do start to think and act holistically and think about membership as one product with many features that need, all need to be coordinated together by a very cross-departmental team, we started to find at, my, at, at uh, uh, an association I worked for that we started to be able to think about, for example, our content differently. So we started thinking about our content more holistically. So when a theme for content came up, instead of it being dealt with by the publications department, we dealt with it from the member's perspective. What do they need to know? How often do they need to know it? Is it a learning thing? Is it a certification thing? Is it just a series of podcasts? What is it from the, from the consumer's perspective? Then we were able to essentially go to, a, to sponsors and say, 
this theme that we're working on for the next three to six months, this is what we're doing. Would you like to participate? We're not selling them access to a webinar. We're not selling them, you know, we're, we're looking at sponsoring themes and bringing sponsors in as, as thematic partners. A, we made more money that way, which is great, but B, we're then, we're not also spinning our wheels selling, you know, 50 different components and features. So maybe that's a, a way to start thinking about changing the dynamic without a massive overhaul of the business model. Well, and I think that's so, uh, without the massive overhaul of the business model, I mean, eventually there are going to be massive overhauls of business models. Uh, Part (laughs) of it is just going to be forced on us. Um, But right now, and this is a a great lead into my next question, is what advice, so recognizing that we may need to be working more cross-departmentally and more thematically, um, is there advice you would share with your colleagues who are going to have to tackle this under duress right now? In other words, we don't have the same runway that we would have had a year ago. Were we starting to talk about this and get the board on board and you right. know, have an opportunity face-to-face internally to have meetings about it and to lay out the plan? Now, in many cases, we're working from home or spread out. We, we don't have a chance. We don't have the same mm-hmm. runway that we had. So for a colleague who is, knows this is the right thing to do, but they're doing it under duress, any advice? Well, probably the obvious advice, which isn't really advice, but more of a comment than anything, is there is there is no simple path here, which for a listener to this podcast, if they're looking for the one thing they can do to go generate a million dollars in margin, they're not going to get it from me. I haven't found it. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I haven't found it. <laughs> we were hoping you had a silver bullet. <laughs> right. That, that said, I, I, I typically don't think in the, in the super short term. So that can be a fault of mine personally, which I understand. However, I do think of the things that we can do right now in the short term that set us up for, you know, some short term success and, but even better near to far term success. So my answer to your question is, is kind of with that couched with that in mind. And what I would suggest to folks, and this for people who know me, this won't come as a surprise answer. I would suggest people start right now uh, to practice human-centered design. And when I say that, the simplest thing to do is to go Google design thinking. You will find on the IDEO or the Stanford D School or a couple of other websites a very simple schematic of what design thinking is, the simple five steps that you can take to start to implement it. There are resources out there that are free, open, it won't cost you anything. And uh, it's certainly not the practice of medicine, but it is a practice. It is not something that you go to a class and then you, you master in one day. You can go to a class and that will give you some extra momentum, but you don't have to. Anyone can be a design thinker. And I would encourage associations to say, look, if I start doing human-centered design, even on a small project, I've got a project today where I don't really truly understand with depth the customer I'm designing for that I'm serving. It could be your business partner sponsors. It could be 
you know, a segment of membership like students. It could be, you know, could be anyone. If you run a design thinking process, the first thing you're doing is you're, you're learning a deeper understanding of that audience that you want to design for, and you have a much, much higher likelihood of success. And success to you might mean, you know, selling more product, selling more sponsorship, whatever the case may be. But you have a much, much higher likelihood of success. You don't have to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall when you go through a design thinking process. You just have to be iterative in your design process and inclusive. It can happen very rapidly. So if you're looking at product development, product improvement, whether you should keep, toss, improve, you know, develop something new, design thinking will help you get to that decision. You're slowing down a little bit to speed up much faster later. It's a little bit of a, a process, but you, but you're not throwing spaghetti at the wall. You're being very, very thoughtful in your design. So, uh, um, in the short term, you can have some successes, but in, more importantly, you're building a muscle uh, of of a design, a human-centered design muscle, and you're building um, an understanding from your your organization's perspective of what it means to be truly human-centered and empathetic with your customers that you're designing for. And that's going to serve you even better in the long term. And it, it forces you to stop thinking just about uh, individual product development over time. It starts, that also gets back to your previous question, starts to help you think more holistically about the experience you're serving up to your customer. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're suggesting we start with the people first and let that lead to the product rather than starting mm -hmm. with the product that we promote to people. Correct. Fair? Right. And so what are the obstacles that you see in associations? Let's say that I've decided to do this and I'm all pumped up and I'm ready to go. Knowing what you know about associations, what are the obstacles that you see often come up? Well, when we, a group decides to pivot to this or, or change right. their focus. Um, the we've always done it this way is always an issue. Uh, um, I think it's less of an issue now. I, I think it's really interesting. You hear people are, are very aware of that issue. And um, I think there's more challenge to that now than there has been in the past. So that may not be a, a, a grand challenge, but maybe a, a micro challenge for some. Uh, one of the issues that I see is there's a there's a hefty reliance on certain revenue streams, dues, publications, etc. And so to be able to find the resources to tease away from uh, some of those products that we're so reliant on to go build something new, think of something new, redesign something that's in one of those product lines sometimes is not easy for folks. What I find, though, uh, at least with my history, is that if you build a cross-departmental team, even if it's about a product that lives in a single department, but if you build a cross-departmental team and you give them the context of what they're about to go through in terms of a design thinking and human-centered design process, it builds... It, it breaks through this inertia. Uh, and a lot of times it's personal inertia. I don't have time. I'm so busy, right, et cetera. 
people find time and they say, wait a minute, this is something new. It's, it's a different, it's going to help me think differently. It's going to build a creative, a creative muscle for me that I didn't have before. That's something a lot of people want to invest in and they'll go that extra mile, that extra step. It's exciting. It's invigorating. It's, it's not my day to day grind, you know? And, uh, um, so it, that sounds maybe a little deflective, but you know, we have to think about the people in our organizations and, uh, and not put them through, if you will, the, uh, um, the assembly line of putting those products together every day. We, our job, I believe as leaders is to inspire and build the creative muscle muscle of our organizations. And Sir Ken Robinson in his very, very famous Ted talk, his definition of creative, I've like, I've just brought into my soul and his definition of creative is unique ideas with value. So, um, most of our products in associations, frankly, are not unique. I'm not saying they don't have value, but they're not unique. When we build these cross-departmental teams and bring design thinking or some other human-centered design process in and give people the opportunity to build creatively, I think you get past the inertia, uh, at least a lot of the individual inertia. And you can let your board quickly know, hey, this is what we're doing. How can they argue with designing something new, different, or redesigning something that you have that um, is based on what you're hearing from your members. You can't argue against that. So I would add the word, so inertia I think is a great word, certainly very descriptive. I would add the word complacent to some of of what's happened internally. And so as we're creating an environment for this type of work to happen. I like to think of unleashing staff's potential to do their highest and best work. So as leaders, I think too, those internal obstacles, identifying those internal obstacles and then uh, granting permission and and then creating a way forward for that. Because I think we do have a lot of untapped potential. And the reason it's untapped is because we've always done it this way, or we're always on deadline, we don't have the ability. But I think part of setting aside a team and giving them a challenge and giving them, so not only the the assigned uh, goal, but also the time resources that they need to to go innovate and develop and do what they need, I think is an important piece of this. Can I I just reflect on the last sentence you just you just said there, Mary, um, at, at, at an old organization of mine, a recent, but uh, a past organization of mine, we went through a human-centered design process to, to understand um, how we could serve uh, members uh, potentially from an organizational perspective. So it was almost turning the organization from a, an individual membership to a hybrid trade individual membership. That's as far as I'll go in describing that. But in, in doing that, we built a cross-departmental team. We let the team, I was a facilitator. I was not a leader. I was a facilitator in running human-centered design process. Once we got, and after about three months, we got to uh, the design of what this kind of hybrid model looked like um, based on a lot of feedback from a lot of different uh, members across, across our membership. 
the team then said, great, we have the design of the product. Now we actually have to build this thing. We have to go from an individual membership to a hybrid membership. How do we do that? We basically gave the authority, the accountability, the responsibility, everything to that team. They, they were um, self-directed. They imposed their own deadlines. And the whole thing was built and launched in six months. But wow. they, they did it, right? So, so when you think about self-organization and giving someone the opportunity to self-organize, they'll do it right. They'll do it based on where they can find time. They'll find out how to make the time in their schedules, et cetera. You don't have to enforce it on them. They're excited about it. They built it from scratch. They want to do it. So I, I, that last sentence you said about the authority, the accountability, the responsibility, the self-organization to me is incredibly important. I'm really glad that you emphasize that because I think that, uh, that that's a really good takeaway for listeners. Um, you know, th- this kind of all taps into the, you know, finding the time and the authority. Um, you know, revenue pressures are mounting and, and sometimes that tends to freeze thinking rather than unleash thinking. And do associations, I guess, really have the time to respond proactively to what we're talking about here? Or are we in an all hands on deck mode? Or, or is the answer both or somewhere in between? <laughs> my, my initial, my gut answer was going, was going to be uh, black and white, A, B, binary, zero, one, it's one or the other. But then I gave you an out, so I right, think this might did. be my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as I started thinking about it, the, the, the previous answer I was talking about with now near far, it is a very blended approach. Uh, but as you pointed out, it's very difficult to think in multiple time zones and multiple dimensions of time, so to speak, and not only think that way, but act that way. So I'm, today I'm acting both in the now and in the near, right? I'm kind of building towards both. That's not an easy habit to build for, for leaders or for staff you know, for, for anyone. Um, but when I think about um, a, an association's position and where they're at, it, it, you know, I can't, I can't think about where everyone's at. I can only kind of reflect on my own experience. One of the things that I, I think has been difficult for associations to consider is the use of their reserves um, beyond the rainy day reserves, Okay. And now COVID is a perfect rainy day example of why I can't tell you how many professionals I'm hearing from whose boards will not let them touch the reserves. And I'm thinking to myself, this isn't a rainy day. This is a tsunami. Yes. This is what reserves (laughs) were built for. Exactly. So yes, that is exactly right. So, so let me talk about reserves just for a second and the mentality around reserves. You just described a large chunk of the mentality out there. Another chunk is we will tap into reserves during the rainy day or during the tsunami, but then it's to bolster existing operations. If I take a step out of the association world for a second, sure, you can go to any organization, you know, and talk about how they save money for R&D and do all this kind of stuff. Um, there was, a, there was a time, I think maybe it was five or six years ago, um, 
where uh, it was in the news a lot, where Apple had something, something crazy, 70, $80 billion in cash. And Google was on a tear uh, throwing money at buying companies left and right. You could argue that Google was a little, you know, going on a too much of a shopping spree, you know, down Saks Fifth Avenue. But Apple investors were screaming at the top of their lungs, stop sitting on the cash. What's wrong with you? So when you think about the you know, publicly traded sector out there, like an Apple, versus how we think about our reserves, there's a almost a 180 degree mentality there. The way I think about reserves is, yes, we want some for a rainy day. And I know there's guidelines through, you know, when you're a CAE, six to nine months or whatever it is and all that kind of jazz. That's just a guideline. That's all that is. I think we need to be thinking about reserves now, not just for the rainy day of COVID, but for investing in our business models and investing in products and services and uh, um, yeah, you might want to return, et cetera, but I think we need to be thinking more aggressive. There are some folks out there that say, oh, well, our board lets us take, you know, we have 20 million in reserves and our board lets us take 300,000 a year. That's, that's more than you make off of your interest. Come on. Uh, you know, I'm talking millions. Let's give ourselves an opportunity to use the resources we have. That is a resource. It can't just always be about the people that are employed there. We have to be willing to pull on reserves in a, in a contemporary way, not in a way that we were thinking about 50 years ago when associations were, were flush with cash and just building reserves. It's, it's not a piggy bank anymore. It's got to be a strategic lever. You have actually, uh, you've hit a nerve with me because I, I agree a hundred percent plus. Um, I when I when I work with boards and I ask them how do you define success, many 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 of them say I define success by leaving more money in the bank than when I came in, and that just makes me want to rip my hair out. That's the he who dies with most toys wins mentality. <laughs> Thank you for that. The next time somebody says that to me, I'm going to say, are you trying to be the one that dies with the most toys? But, you know, when we really talk about it, they realize that it's a faulty measure of success. But, yeah. but you know, I think we need to keep talking about it. So I'm, I'm so glad that, that you brought that up. I, I would say success is um, can people extract value? Your customers extract the value they need from your organization when they need it and do so both at a place where their expectations are met, uh, their desires are met, and their own undefined needs are met. So they're delighted by the fact that they got to interact with you. That's success. You know what's that, up? That's a leading indicator of success. What's so ironic about that, Garth, is associations have really risen to the occasion and by providing COVID resources, a very specific need on right. a very short time frame, they've developed resources, they've done webinars, they've provided return to work information, they have met members at, at a time of need. And I've even had some professionals tell me their association has gained members during COVID because people realized they were working without any kind of knowledge and they looked around to see who can help me and they found the association. So it's, if, we, if there's a gift in all this, 
we know what providing member value looks like on a, on a very, you know, short term, crystal clear basis. And now we also have a tailwind for the work that we've known that, that we've needed to do. You know, if we're honest, many of us have known we need to innovate the business model. We need to be doing human-centered design. We need to be putting people before products. We need to be focused on the value and not just product for product's sake. We've mm -hmm. known that we've needed to do all this. And if there's any gift in a pan this pandemic is that we have a tailwind helping us along now and that we really have, we didn't even get permission to do the things that we've been doing. We just started doing them. So I think part of what we need to be thinking about is how can we take what we've learned over the last four months and take the best of that and make it part of our culture going forward. So as we wrap up here, any advice on that? Well, you just said something, Mary, that, that, might have changed my answer had I known what you were going to ask. But the, the, um, you talked about COVID, right? And how uh, uh, many associations responded with resources, recommendations, sometimes even guidelines, et cetera. And people are finding that to be incredibly value, valuable. So I'm going to poke at that for a second with just a, a quick gut theory. Okay, um, COVID created for many associations a lot of angst, um, not only for themselves internally, but for their members. So we're, we're built for and around our members, so their angst is ours. So in building those resources, we addressed a, valid, a, a, a need, um, and I'm going to I'm going to pick on a, a, a need uh, around reducing my anxiety. Okay. okay? That, is, that is an emotional value that is, you know, for a consumer, if you can do something that reduces my anxiety, I will buy your product or service. The, in, say, pre-COVID, any association serving their members, they may not have had to deal with reducing a member's anxiety. They may have had to do with, uh, you know, building quality, uh, building variety, informing them. Those are different customer values, right, that people want from various products and services. But in this case, you just pointed out that, that we've identified a new customer value we had to deliver on quickly, reducing our members' anxiety. So I bring that up because my recommendation, what we, the tailwinds of what we've learned now and what we can pull forward, I would raise my hand and say, go look at the research around the 30 elements of customer value. The 30 elements of value, which include quality, variety, informing, reducing anxiety, they're built in a pyramid like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Most associations, if you really go in and understand each of those 30 customer values, if you build your organization for the future around somewhere around five to seven of those values and you can deliver on them well, you will succeed almost no matter what. And I think the lesson for us is, is if people like our, our immediate response to this, this value need for reducing that anxiety and we're able to build toward that and, and, feed that and fuel that there's no reason we can't do that and design 
specifically for say five to seven values. Um, but you have to do a little bit of research, find out what the customer value is your members want from you. Look at that 30 elements of value and you design toward that. I think you've, I think there's no way you can't uh, stand up and win. That's a wonderful resource. And I think that's a great place to uh, finish our conversation. A lot of great food for thought there. Thank you for being here. This is Mary Byers with Successful Associations today. 